better home. And I fear that this is uh, why, actually I know this is why uh, politics is so strong in our hearts and our minds. There are many competing views in this world of what will give you that good life, what will, what will give you that kingdom. And then every few years, politicians arrive and they cast their vision of here is what a good kingdom looks like, here is what flourishing is. And they rise up and they take power and then in a few years, at least in our system of government, Eventually, they are replaced, and someone else rises up and says, I will enact this kingdom for you, and generally, by the end of four to eight years, we're all kind of sick of them, and we go in the opposite direction. Politics promises us a kingdom, but yet world history is one long, sad story of how human governments can't do that. They can't really give you any satisfaction of that hardwired desire in you. And while there are competing views of that kingdom, I think it's safe to say that almost everybody longs for such a land, such a home of tranquility, justice, peace, and flourishing. But as I said, no politician, no government, no movement, no party can satisfy that longing. And that's why those governments that promise the most to give you the utopia generally end up in the most hellish of circumstances because we just can't do it. And I know that in election years we feel that hollowness and to some extent that is good for us to feel. I know some of you um, are feeling like you don't belong anymore because of who just got elected and I know some of you felt the same way about the last guy. And it's good to an extent to feel that pull, that the kingdom you want, you can't really get. So we ask ourselves, what is the good life? What is the good home, our kingdom, and how do we get it? And I think that's where 2 Samuel 7 is particularly helpful for us today. David, after years of being on the run for his life, after years after he was given the promise by God that you're going to get this kingdom, and he ran around hiding in caves and scratching off of rocks for a living. He's there. The kingdom's his. The kingdom is united. He's in the palace. So what is this kingdom going to look like? In this passage here, 2 Samuel 7 and 8, is central to the entire book, or two books of 1 and 2 Samuel. This is the heart of it. And really, this is central to the entire message of the Old Testament and the entire message of Scripture. David is a king now, and he's given promises from God. We often refer to this as the Davidic covenant. This is a covenant of promises that God is going to give to David. And after David dies, after Solomon dies, the prophets will point back to 2 Samuel 7 again and again and say, this was the promise for a Messiah. When is the Messiah going to come? Israel, in her exile, would hold on to these promises in 2 Samuel 7, saying, one day we will get that kingdom. And 2 Samuel 7 builds that foundation of why Jesus shows up on the scene and says he's the son of David. In other words, this passage is kind of a big deal. And there are four things I want us to see from this passage that can help us to better understand our upside-down world and that longing 
we all have, rightly have, for a greater kingdom. And the first thing I think we need to see here is that God's grace trumps our works. God's grace trumps our works. So David opens this this chapter and he says, I have all of this beautiful kingdom. I am in this palace. God has given me, at least in initial form, a fulfillment of those promises when I was a shepherd boy. But God's still living in a tent. The tabernacle is still just wandering around. God's presence is stuck in a tent and I am in this beautiful, permanent castle. He says, this can't be. I can't keep this going this way. He knows all the things God has done for him and he rightly wants to do something for God. He says, I'm going to build God a house because I have a house or a kingdom or a home myself. But note what God's response is in verses 5 and 6 and then 11. Through the prophet Nathan. He says, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, you, uh, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David goes to God and says, I'm going to build you something great. I'm going to build you a house. And by that he means the temple. And eventually Solomon is going to do that. But the problem is, is God never really fully lives in that temple. God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the temple later on, is but a fraction of who he is. It's a mere act of mercy as he manifests a special dwelling with Israel. But the finite of this world, the finite creations of man, cannot contain the infinite glory and splendor of God. Paul makes this point clear in Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's speaking to the Gentiles there, but it includes the temple of Israel. God does not really live in that temple. God made everything, He's greater than everything. You can't contain him in a house of cedar. To put it another way, there's nothing you or I can give to God that he needs. All of it is his already. You cannot build something great enough for God. He has already made everything. God is so much greater and removed from us. He is infinite. We are finite. We get tired, God never sleeps. We are weak, but he upholds the universe by his strength. We are sinners, but he is holy. We are dependent upon him for our every breath and thought, but he is eternal and independent. He exists by his own power. God is infinite in his glory, greatness, wonder, and splendor. And so while David's attitude is to be commended, When we see what God has done for us, we should want to do stuff in return. We also have to realize that God is not lacking. And we don't have anything to add to him. A friend of mine once gave me an illustration of this. 
He says, us trying to add to God would be like if we were to walk up to the edge of the ocean with a glass of water, thinking the ocean needed more water, and dumped it in. That's what it's like. You don't have anything to give to him that he needs. So, David, or so God says to David, I don't need what you're offering. I have no need for a house on this earth. But I will make you a house. So David wants to do these great works for God, and God says, how about I do that for you? That's the grace. We want the works to come in, and God says, I'm going to do what you think you're going to do for me. I'm going to do for you. And this is a metaphor for the whole works-grace relationship. We so desperately want to claim some credit for our salvation, some way that we added to it, some way that we are better than those people who did not repent and believe or who have not. But the Bible reminds us again and again that God saves us wholly by grace, wholly by his works, not by our own. It doesn't mean that we don't respond in faith, we don't live out our faith, but it means that God is greater than us. And if he does not act, there is no hope for us. So we do not need to build God a house because he instead will build one for us. We do not need to save ourselves for God has saved us in Christ. We do not need to fix this world and turn it into a utopia because God is doing that through the rule and reign of Christ. We do not need to build a kingdom by our knowledge or strength for God has established an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as we turn to the specifics here, there are two sets of promises that God gives to David about this house he's going to build him. The first set, in verses 9 through 11, are given to David for his lifetime. The next set, which we'll cover in a minute here, is promises for after David has passed on. And there are really four promises that God gives in these verses for David's lifetime. First, God promises to give David a great name. He says, David, I am going to give you this great name. And part of that is tied to the fact that David will be the pinnacle. This is, this is the golden age of Israel in the Old Testament. They've never reached this peak beforehand, and it's only downhill from here throughout the rest of the Old Testament. David is going to have this great name because his enemies are going to be defeated and Israel is going to thrive. But as you're reading your Bible... You should note that this uh, promise of a great name does not start with David, but it really starts with Abraham. God promises to Abraham that he will give him a great name. And David, as a son of Abraham, is picking up that promise that was given to the people of Israel through Father Abraham, and now it is going to be coming through the line of David. Second, God promises that during David's lifetime, Israel will have a firm place. They will be firmly established. That is, uh, that has to do with Israel's enemies. They will not threaten Israel either from within or from without. Third, God promises to give Israel rest. So in that firm place and the rest is the same way. They will have peace. They're right there together. They will have peace with God and they will have peace with each other and their nations and the other nations. Fourth, He's promised that David's house, the line of the king, will be established. 
That is, David will have an heir who will sit upon the throne. His dynasty will be established. Now, all of these great promises are given to David, and he will get to enjoy them in his life. But we need to note here that there is a condition. There's an underlying condition to these promises. David must obey. David must continue to be faithful to God. All of these four blessings hinge upon his continued obedience, him continuing to be a God or a man after God's own heart. And the sad reality is that man never lives up to those conditions. Just in a few chapters, David will see a beautiful woman naked on the roof, and all of these promises that God gave come to nothing. So God will confront David through the prophet Nathan, and he pronounces a reversal of these promises. He says about David's sin that the sword will now never depart your house. Bathsheba gets pregnant, and God takes the life of his child. Eventually, David's other son, Absalom, will rise up from within Israel and try to take over the kingdom, and for a short period of time, he does. And God says that eventually, because of these sins, that the nation of Israel will be split in two. His other son, Solomon, eventually gets to be king. Solomon starts off fine, but then he wanders even farther off course than his father. And Solomon is an abject failure. And he's the last king of the united Israel. And the New Testament barely even makes mention of Solomon. He is just that bad of a king. The kingdom of David fell. And it fell because David fell. And it fell because David is not the one we're looking for. He's not the one who can bring that greater kingdom. And sometimes we think to ourselves, how can this happen? David is such a hero of the Old Testament. He is that guy described as a man after God's own heart. How does he end up committing adultery and murdering his competition? And it's a good question. And the answer is he's just like you and me. That's, that's why. He's got highs, he's got lows. He's a sinner born in the line of Adam, just like you and I are. In other words, as the promises are given to Eve in Genesis 3, and then given to Abraham here, and then given through Moses and Israel, and then we have David, that this king we're looking for, this offspring of the woman who is to come, is not David. As great as he is, he can't bring in all the promises of God. And that leads us to the promises for after David's lifetime. Verses 12 through 16. I'll read them again to you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. These second sets of promises here for after David's death are not contingent upon his obedience. This is where we get the idea of a Messiah or Christ in the Greek. It finds its origin in this prophecy, the anointed one, the prince who will come, who will sit upon the throne of David and who will sit upon that throne forever. Because when you promise that there will be an eternal king sitting upon the line of David, you've only got two options. Either there's always going to be a new king born in that line and he'll sit on the throne forever. Or you get one king. Secondly, you get one king who will sit on that throne forever. And as the prophets pick this up, it becomes quite clear that at some, at some time there will be a greater David from the line of David who will sit on the throne of David over God's people forever. And we all know who that is today. This is why the New Testament goes through such strenuous uh, activities to show you that Jesus is from the line of David in the ge genealogies. This is why Jesus is killed, and as he's killed upon the cross, the title over his head is that he is the king of the Jews. They were right. He is the king of the Jews. So there's basically these three promises given here. First is that eternal offspring. Again, offspring is a huge theme running throughout the Bible. Eve is promised an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush Satan. Abraham is promised an offspring who will usher in all of these promises given to Abraham and his people. And now David is promised an offspring who will come and sit upon the throne forever. And Paul says in Galatians 3, referring to Abraham, and that offspring is Christ. It's him. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who's going to bring in that greater kingdom. The second promise, then, is that kingdom. It's no good being a king if you don't have a land to rule, if you don't have a kingdom. So David's heirs promise a kingdom to rule and to rule forever. And this has special significance to Israel because of the significance of the promised land. God said, I'm going to give you this land. And then they lost it in the exile. And they would hold on to this promise. One day we're going to get it back. One day we're going to have a kingdom. And so they waited for a Messiah to usher in that perfect kingdom. And finally, he's promised an eternal throne. That when this king comes, he will never be dethroned. No one will ever be able to touch him. And that is not just the hope of Israel, but it is the hope of the nations. That this king of the Jews is more than just the king of the Jews. But he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And if he does not come, then that longing that is hardwired into us for good leaders, for a safe, productive kingdom marked by beauty and righteousness, that there is no way to get that unless that king comes. And that brings us to our last and final point. The faithfulness of Christ as our king. We can't read 2 Samuel 7 without also looking to its fulfillment in Christ. In order to have the king that we long for, we need someone 
greater than David, who will not fall, greater than you and me, greater than any historical figure we've seen. And that person is Christ. In the garden, we lost that paradise, and yet we long for it. In the garden, man said, we will set ourselves up to be like God. We will set ourselves up to make our own kingdoms. And there are a myriad of ways in which we try to make kingdoms. Some of us do it uh, through politics. Some of us do it through money. Some of us do it through getting the approval of others, or your family, or fame, or the next experience, or pleasure, or sex, or whatever. You all have a vision of what will be that perfect, fulfilling life. And you build that image of a kingdom, and you seek it. And Christ shows up, and he says, Seek first my kingdom, and I'll give you the rest. In order to find that kingdom, we need a faithful leader because we can't do it ourselves. And the story of this king is breathtaking from the outset. He's born not in a palace, but in a stable. Not where you expect to find a king. He's anointed to go around preaching his message by a raving madman who eats insects in the desert. Then he goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. And Satan says, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you will but bend your knee to me. And unlike all the other contenders from beforehand, this king says, no. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take the shortcut. Adam and Eve faced this serpent in paradise, in an unfallen world, and he offered them their own kingdom, and they took it. The serpent tempted David, it's not mentioned in scripture, but it's there. He tempted David. David sought his own kingdom through pleasure, and he fell. He's not the faithful king. Christ, contrary to all of this, is fasting in the wilderness, has no support, no perfection in a fallen world, and the king, or in the serpent, offers him what the king wants a kingdom. And he says, No. He lived a perfect life. He healed people. He taught them truth. He walked among us. He loved us. And he was one of us so that he could die in our place to bring in that which we long for. We long for such a king. We long for such a kingdom. And God has provided it. God's grace trumps our works. So, I'll kindly say to you this morning, stop being like David. Stop looking for a kingdom by whatever it is you're looking for it from. Your own power, your own money, your own pleasure, because none of it will bring it in. Instead, look to Christ. He wins. He reigns. He's coming back. And his kingdom is not the kingdoms of dirt that we have today, that are but mirages. Whether that kingdom is you, your nation, your political party, your family, your money, your career, they will all fade like everything else in this world. But Christ won't. We have this dangerous tendency as we search for that, to fulfill that longing that we have to do that building of those kingdoms. And we start making demands of each other and of this world that simply can't be met. We search for that utopia, and we can't find it. 
And Francis Schaeffer warned us of that danger of looking for a utopia. He said this, Utopianism is terribly cruel because it expects the impossible from people. These expectations are not based on reality. They stand in opposition to the genuine human possibilities afforded by the realism of Scripture. Utopianism can cause harm. In the home, in the man-woman relationship, nothing is more cruel than for a wife or husband to build up a false image in his or her mind and then demand that the husband or wife measure up to this false romanticism. Nothing smashes homes more than this. Such behavior is totally contrary to the Bible's doctrine of sin. Even after redemption, we are not perfect in this life. Utopianism is also harmful in the parent-child relationship. When a parent demands more from his child than the child is capable of giving, the parent destroys him as well as alienates him. If we demand in our relationships either perfection or nothing, we will get nothing. If we demand perfection or nothing, you will get nothing every time in this world. And maybe you're not actually demanding full-on perfection, but maybe you're demanding something that other people will never live up to, and that you yourself cannot live up to. Some of you are living in this hell because you are demanding a utopia and you are getting nothing. And you are destroying your marriages, you are destroying your kids, you are destroying your community, you are destroying your church because you are so wrapped up in pursuing your kingdom that you will never get and you get so bitter because you can't get it that you're destroying everything good God has given you. We see it all too often. And it's hard. And it's difficult. But we have to get this through our minds. That if you will make these demands upon others, this is what you're going to get. So our call is to look at ourselves and to say, am I getting nothing right now? Is my life marked by bitterness? Am I marked by constantly complaining? Will no one hear me out? It's probably because you're doing this. Is your family falling apart? It's probably because you've tried to make it into your own kingdom. And it's coming to nothing. And you won't humble yourself to realize that your your spouse or your children, they can't be Christ, and you sure as can't be either. So stop it. Stop looking for perfect in this world and start looking to Christ. He is the faithful king. He will give you that kingdom, but you've got to fall on your knees and look to him instead of yourself. And that's good news because your works aren't enough, but his grace is way more than enough. He will do what you cannot. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed that faithful king. 
That in you, we find the one who is greater, the one who is eternal, the one who is perfect. And that you did what we could not do, and that you are doing what we cannot do. Lord, teach us to lean into your grace. That we would not become little Pharisees thinking that we can bring this in. That we would not hold up standards that are impossible for other people to meet. But instead, that we would look for the satisfaction of those longings in your provision, in what you have given us in Christ, in what you have promised us in his kingdom. Lord, teach us to repent of our wayward wandering and to find satisfaction in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's close this morning by joining our voices together and asking the Lord to send his kingdom, not ours, but his.